What's scary about conviction is it's really the opposite of optionality. A lot of people talk about optionality, which is keeping your options open. Well, guess what? In a startup, you don't do optionality. In order to keep your options open, that means pursuing leads that are not aligned with your current goal. It means talking to people you don't need to. It means trying to build features that aren't aligned with your current goal because, oh, it seems interesting. We've got to keep our options open. Well, you're paying a price in the same way that on the stock market, you can buy options, right? But to have the option, you pay for it. You're listening to The Startup Podcast, a show focused on helping you build, run, and invest in Silicon Valley-style startups. Whether you're an investor, founder, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights on the principles that power high-growth disruption the way Facebook, Google, and Uber do it. The conversation starts now. Hey, I'm Chris. And I'm Yaniv. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about the slightly murky topic of conviction. It's quite common to say these founders need to have more conviction. And Chris, you and I are both big believers in the power and necessity of conviction. But what exactly is it? What do you need to have good conviction? Why is it so important? And also, how does something like conviction, which sometimes can sound a little bit like having religion, right? How does that fit in with being data-driven and evidence-informed and experimental? Well, in this episode, we're going to break it all down for you, probably disagree on a few things and have a really useful debate and hopefully get to a point where you will understand why conviction is a key ingredient that every startup needs in order to be successful. Now, before we dive too deeply into the episode, people will probably notice in the last couple episodes, I've had a little bit of a gravelly throat. I've had a flu that strained my voice box, so apologies about that and thanks for bearing with me. But you can just see how much conviction we have about making these episodes. We want to make sure we don't miss a week for you guys. I think it's a sign of love and commitment, Chris, that you're willing to put your voice on the line week after week for our audience. So thanks for your service. You've twisted my arm, Yanev. I have no choice. <laughs> <laughs> so Chris, let's start at the beginning. We like to define our terms. And I think with conviction, that's particularly important. What is conviction and how can you tell if you have it? Conviction is essentially your ability to lock in a decision and act on that decision with consistency over time. It is the ability to declare something to be true or true enough such that you're not constantly relitigating that point and able to make decisions, trade-offs, and forward momentum consistently within that context over time. Yeah, it's funny. As you say it, I was thinking of another very similar word that I like to use quite a lot, which is commitment, right? While it's important to be agile and evidence-driven and so on, if you are constantly reopening everything, relitigating, as you say, then you have this problem where you're never actually focused on trying to prove your hypothesis, your view of the world. You're just changing your mind all the time. And that might feel like you're being agile and open-minded, but what it means is you don't have any sense of your destination. By the way, making a big startup, creating a unicorn, that is not a destination, right? You need to actually know what you're doing. And what does conviction have that commitment doesn't? I think conviction is nearly commitment with an extra layer of belief behind it. And that belief and vision can be slightly irrational. And we'll go into this as well, right? Why is it important to have a slightly irrational belief in the context of your experimental, agile, evidence-driven startup so that you can make progress? You know, in my advisory work, I will often meet founders who have a high degree of conviction on their big vision, right? I want to change finance. I want to rethink healthcare. And they have a lot of passion and conviction about that. 
And that vision is often what we call boil the ocean idea. It's like hundreds of things to go do in that category, in that broad area of redefining healthcare or redefining finance. But where a lot of founders or even executives start to run into trouble, it's when you ask them to choose a specific next course of action, to narrow that ocean boiling idea down into the first wedge, the first MVP that gets you along that journey. That's where people get really nervous, right? They want to do all of it. They want to ship that big vision. And when you ask them to what I call collapse that potentiality into a specific reality, they get very, very nervous. What's scary about conviction is it's really the opposite of optionality. A lot of people talk about optionality, which is keeping your options open. Well, guess what? In a startup, you don't do optionality. In order to keep your options open, that means pursuing leads that are not aligned with your current goal. It means talking to people you don't need to. It means trying to build features that aren't aligned with your current goal because, oh, it seems interesting. We've got to keep our options open. Well, you're paying a price in the same way that on the stock market, you can buy options, right? But to have the option, you pay for it. And as a startup, you have very limited resources and you are not an options trading firm. You cannot afford to buy those options. You've got to decide what it is you're doing and go all in on that thing. And if it doesn't work, then you change, but you do not keep your options open. Another thing that I wanted to say about this is we've talked in the past and we'll probably talk in the future about autonomous teams, having a culture of autonomy. And we often talk about bounded autonomy. The difference between having an organization where there's a lot of team autonomy and a disorganization where it's just chaos. We've talked about this in our episode on alignment. You set guardrails. You say you're autonomous within this domain. Well, the same thing applies to your whole startup, right? If you don't create those guardrails, those constraints on your own thinking, you're going to go in all sorts of different directions. So you really need to say, this is what we're about. Everything else we don't care about for now. We might come back to it. But all of our passion, all of our conviction, all of our energy is going into this approach. And we're not going to constantly, every week, question ourselves on whether it's the right approach, because then we won't get that compounding learning effect of the focus that we really need to have as a startup. Yeah, that's right. If you as a leader do not have conviction about your immediate tactical goal, you will thrash your team. You will randomize your team. The next shiny object, the next good idea will send you off in a different direction. And you'll try to be maintaining that optionality as you go. And you'll not be able to give your team that clear context that we've talked about so many episodes, right? And so in many ways, the only thing worse than having conviction about the wrong idea is having no conviction about any ideas because you're just this like amorphous blob pancaked out, achieving nothing very quickly, instead of at least trying to achieve something specific, learning whether that thing will work or not, and then making an intentional pivot when the time is right. There are a bunch of cognitive biases that we're fighting here. You hear about CEOs and founders that have what's called shiny object syndrome, always chasing something new. And I think there's a novelty bias, there's a recency bias, and because of that, humans have been creating what are called commitment devices for a long time, which is when you pre-commit to doing something and you don't question it and you actually bound your own actions so that you can go through this. They're sometimes called Odysseus devices or Ulysses tools because the canonical example of that was when Ulysses asked his men to tie him to the mast as they were going past the sirens, who were these mythical creatures that would kill you with their beautiful songs. They'd direct you onto the rocks. So he tied himself to the mouse so he could hear the song without actually responding to it, without being able to respond to it. So literally to stay the course. And I think that's just so valuable, right? If you lack conviction, 
you are susceptible to those cognitive biases. You will chase what is new. You will get annoyed with what is old. You will be focused on whatever you've been thinking about or whoever you've been talking to most recently. And so conviction and commitment really is this device where we're saying we are locking in a contract with ourselves about what we care about and we are going to focus on that thing. And that's the only way to fight this lack of conviction, which puts you all over the place. That shiny object syndrome, that recency bias, you often hear founders talk about, but this is a really great opportunity, Chris, you don't understand. <laughs> and the question is like, it's a great opportunity for what outcome, right? Along what strategic direction? Because it's not enough for it to be a great opportunity. It has to be an opportunity on strategy. If you think about startups and what do they have compared to big organizations, what allows a small, poorly funded startup to succeed when there are giant corporations in the same industry that are failing? There are a lot of different things. There are market dynamics. There's the ability to move quickly, but there is also just this giving a shit factor, right? Where the big companies are like, oh, this is an interesting space and we're going to go and have a look at it and so on. But they don't care enough. They give up too early. They're not eating, drinking, sleeping this stuff. And so they move on. You read about cultures that have arranged marriages and they interview these old couples who've been married for 50 years. And they're like, well, you know, we didn't love each other at first, but as we spent time together, we fell in love with each other. And I think that's another thing that happens with conviction, right? Which is that spend time with the problem. You will fall in love with the problem. And sometimes that love doesn't come straight away. But if you don't give yourself that permission to have conviction about it, you will never get to a problem that you're in love with. And so, again, I keep talking about commitment alongside conviction as being these essential tools. I think we've painted a fairly thorough picture here about what conviction is and why it's so important. Now, the real art here, Yanev, is, well, how the heck do you get this conviction? You're in the weeds, you're in the trenches, you're trying to lead your company, lead your team, and you're trying to avoid the siren song. That's really, really hard to do. It just is. You and I, I'm sure, have countless times been seduced by the siren song and had a lack of conviction and tried to maintain all this optionality. So there's a few things we want to touch on today. The first is people often talk about data-driven decision-making, and you've got to hypothesize and test your way to success. And I think, Yanev, both you and I think there are some limitations to that approach. It needs to be paired with a broader view and your own innate conviction. The metaphor I often use is navigating the world with pure data-driven decision-making is kind of like staring at the GPS while you drive. You said to me a term which I love before the recording, which is the map is not the terrain. You need to lift your gaze off that little infotainment screen in the car. And you need to see if there's a child running across the street. You need to see the actual conditions on the road. And you need to make some common sense judgments about where you're headed and why you're going there and what is immediately in your view. And so the first most common way that people talk about getting conviction is by having hypotheses and testing them. You'll read that in every book and every blog post. <laughs> Any product manager who's been classically trained will talk to you about having a hypothesis and testing it and iterating quickly. And that's incredibly important. And we're not going to really spend a huge amount of time on that today. A lot has been written on that. A lot of ink has been spilled. What we want to talk about is how do you as a leader establish conviction about the problem you want to solve, about the high level space you want to operate in, about the first wedge in the world you want to pursue that will then frame the kind of experiments you're going to go do. That requires a kind of innate conviction or a personal conviction that is not something that you necessarily test your way to. And so that's the main subject of today's episode. Let me rattle off some ideas here, some characteristics that it takes to get a conviction, and we'll then start to dig into each of these one by one. 
So on LinkedIn recently, I posted that conviction takes vision, constraints, data, intuition, taste, experience, leadership, trust, and courage. Is that all? That's it. That's it's really <laughs> easy, Yanev. You can do that, right? Yeah, why not? No, it really is a complicated mix of things that help you to convince yourself as a leader about the direction you want to go and then convince your team that you have confidence about that direction. I'm reminded randomly here about an episode of Star Trek where Dr. Beverly Crusher and the Captain Picard are through some sci-fi gimmick. Their mental states are linked and they can read each other's thoughts. And they're stuck on this planet and they've been injured and they don't have any resources and they're trying to find the way off. And they come to a T intersection and the Captain Picard says, let's go left. And Dr. Crusher says, you have no idea which way to go. You just made that up. Do you act like this all the time? You seem to be so sure and confident about the direction. And I can tell now that I'm linked to your mind, you don't actually have any clue which direction to go. You just pick the direction. And he basically had to admit that part of leadership is picking a direction and picking it confidently and giving your team the confidence to execute. And that's part of what we're talking about here. We're not saying flip a coin. You'll note that in my list, I talked about intuition and taste and experience so that there is a foundation of information that you're making your decision on. But what's key is that you make that decision well and present it to your team clearly so that they are empowered to act, to make trade-offs and to execute consistently over time. So let's first tackle vision. Yanev, how would you think about having vision in the context of conviction? Yeah, I think a vision is what I was talking about before, which is falling in love with a problem and falling in love with a high-level approach to solving that problem. It's difficult to be product-led without a vision, right? Imagine this world where something is different and better as a result of the thing that you've built. And without that, I think you can become very reductionist. You become sort of mercantile and mercenary. And it's just like, oh, okay, where can we make a buck? But if you really want to have a lever that can move the world, then you need a vision. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe another word for this is your insight. You know, what is your insight about the world? What is it that you see as broken that perhaps other people have been happy to tolerate? What do you think has changed or shifted in terms of technology, culture, or policy that has created a new context, a new opportunity for change? What image do you have in your mind that you want to manifest into reality? Mm. And so this frames everything, right? It should motivate and animate you and the team. It brings into vivid relief the thing you're all striving to achieve. And in many cases, it would be ideal if that vision includes something much, much larger than yourself, much broader than just some kind of economic transactional outcome. It's sometimes described as your why as well. Why do you deeply care about this? Why should the world care about this? And what are you personally interested in doing? So there are many founders I bump into where they're pursuing a B2B strategy. And we've talked about this before on the podcast, but in their heart of hearts, the thing they care about is affecting the end user experience. And that's part of it, right? And the founder says to me, I'm going B2B because that's where the users are. That's where the revenue is. And I'm saying, yeah, but I hear in your voice, I hear in the story you're telling me, the thing you care about is not other businesses. What you care about is the end user. That's your vision. That's your passion. And so if you were another founder telling me another story, I would tell you your B2B business model is fantastic, but that's not who you are. That's not what your vision is. So don't 
pre-compromise your vision, don't pre-compromise your passion, your insight because of some data-driven thing, because of something VC told you, because you think that's the easier path to market. What do you care about? What do you see in your mind's eye? That is so, so important and so easily discarded by so many founders that I've met. So that's the first bullet point here is have a vision, protect your vision, care about your vision, but you will need to, as clearly as you've had that vision, realize that that's probably a boil the ocean idea. And so you now need to start to get very, very tactical. And that's where we talk about collapsing those potentialities into a reality, which by the way, leads us very neatly into the next bullet here, constraints. Yeah. And I think we've covered this one a little bit already, but what we're really saying here is without those boundaries, without excluding things, then you end up in a space that is simply too broad. Even if it's just within your vision to try to build your whole vision at once, that's not going to work with the resources you have. Remember, you have very limited resources. They are precious. Time and money are your most precious and valuable resources. And if you don't channel those in a way that gives you enough energy to overcome the resistance of the real world, then you're going to fail. So alongside your big vision, you must place a lot of constraints on what you're actually working on. You've got the GPS that might show the way forward, but also you've got the road in front of you. Look out the goddamn window and make sure that you are channeling your energy to the actual environment that you find yourself in right now. By definition, a strategy is exclusionary. It eliminates possible pathways. And so if your strategy is not eliminating pathways, it's not a strategy. It's just a bunch of ideas. I talked about that word optionality, and while it sounds great, it's actually toxic. I've worked with founders who are like, oh, I love to preserve optionality. And I'm like, you cannot afford to preserve optionality. You need to honor your constraints and commit, make a call and work on that thing. In many ways, you'll know if you've got the right kind of constraints, if you are uncomfortable and even embarrassed by how narrowly you've defined the problem and the kind of thing you're working on right now. It needs to be uncomfortably, embarrassingly narrow. And you can tell also if it is narrow enough when the trade-offs you're trying to make become easier to decide on. It becomes easier to know whether you should go left or right because you've defined your problem, you define the thing you're going after tightly enough. This does not mean you can't broaden into adjacencies over time. You will. In fact, that's the only way to do it. But you have to start with that tight constraint. So the next big ticket item to get conviction is intuition. As we've talked about at the beginning, you can test and hypothesize and experiment your way to success around tactics. But initially you need to ask yourself, well, what's the intuition about this? What is common sense telling you? Do you have an unfair insight? Do you come from this domain? Are you a customer who experienced this pain? Can you empathize with people who are in this situation? What does your common sense intuition tell you about this? to again, help to narrow the scope of inquiry, narrow the kind of hypotheses and tests you might take so that you can fast forward to the right answer a little bit. So I've got another way of framing this for people who are a little bit nervous about the slightly woo-woo nature of the term intuition, which is about having a mental model that you exploit, right? I think to me, intuition is you have a version of reality in your head that you can kind of play forward and see what's going to happen with some reasonable level of fidelity. So to your point, Chris, if you have industry experience, or if you've talked to your customers or whatever source of extra insight you have into that domain, 
If you assemble that into a mental model where you're better at predicting what's going to work, what people will like than your average bear, then you should really be bringing that to bear. And that becomes a really strong part of your vision. Again, intuition is such a vague term. To me, that makes it more concrete and also makes it more actionable. You say, well, where do I get intuition from? Well, you get intuition by talking to people, by experiencing things yourself, and by then processing what you've experienced and what you've learned into a model. I love that framing very much, having a mental model that you can use to simulate some possible future. And I think that's a really, really nice academic or scientific way of thinking about something that can often be thought of as like, yeah, magical thinking. So that's really awesome. The next big ticket item here is having taste. Let me give you an example, okay? Microsoft was building tablets or encouraging their OEMs to build tablets for how long do you think? 15 years before the iPad came out? Yeah, they have what was it, Windows CE and pen devices and things like that. Yeah, Windows for pen. They had a technology they called Ink and handwriting conversion to text. Microsoft and their hardware partners were building tablets for just ages, ages. And so they had a vision for what the world would be, right? Knowledge workers running around the office with these digital pieces of paper. They had some constraints, right? They had the hardware and the processing power, and I'm sure they had these personas and customers and buyers, and they had some intuition that ink was the right input with pen. But the problem with Microsoft and their partners is, other than perhaps being a bit too early, they had no taste. They failed to have what Steve Jobs had, which is to say, you don't need a stylus. You have 10 digits on your fingers. This is not paper. This is a delightful piece of glass that you can swipe. You know, this is not a convertible clamshell Windows PC or even Mac OS thing that's an inch thick. This has to be a few millimeters thick. This is not a, a productivity device. This is a lean back in your rocking chair and consume content device. All of those things, all of those choices, while I'm sure they were experimented on and tested in labs with industrial designers, but they ultimately took a lot of taste. And that's the difference, I think, between Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. That kind of craftsmanship, I think it helps, again, in this process of getting conviction and process of getting to great outcomes, it helps you fast forward a little bit to the right outcomes along the way. This is an interesting one. As a robotic engineer type, I do resist taste as a concept because, it, again, it's very vague. I think I understand what you're saying here, but I wonder if this is really something that emerges from empathy and that mental model and from understanding the problem you're going to solve and from being willing to impose those constraints on yourself, right? Like Steve Jobs wasn't trying to make an everything machine. He was like, I am going to take a position on what the iPad is going to be. And then I'm going to make sure that I understand what that position means and I'm going to go for it, right? I'm not going to make something that keeps our options open. I'm making one type of device and people will like it. Now, is that taste? Is taste separate from all of these other things we're talking about? I'm not sure, but certainly you can see the difference between that and Microsoft kind of saying, oh, well, you know, we've got very powerful, it's very extensible, it keeps our options open, it's not opinionated. We haven't thought about how it fits into people's everyday lives. We're taking a kind of clean room technology-driven approach to this rather than a customer-focused, vision-driven approach to it. I think taste goes a little deeper than that, Yanev. I agree that it's easier to arrive at taste when you have strong vision and constraints and intuition and you've spoken to a lot of customers and you have your unfair insights and 
I think that makes taste easier to arrive at. But you still ultimately have to pick the color. <laughs> you still mm. have to pick the font size, the spacing, the use cases that you think are most important despite what people who have no imagination are telling you. <laughs> yes. And there are so few people with imagination in the world. Maybe they were born with imagination, but the education system and life has beaten it out of them or something. Yeah. But there are a subset of people who have better taste than others. That might sound exclusionary or elitist in some way, but I think, you know, that's what great product designers are for, what great industrial designers are for, what the very best product managers are. Not just people who know how to execute a craft, but actually themselves have some level of taste. You mentioned another word that I like very much, which I haven't used yet in this episode, and I think we should use it more, being opinionated. Oftentimes, you may have picked the right problem and picked the right constraints, but whatever workflow you're trying to improve may have seven or 10 or 15 different ways about going about that problem, especially in enterprise software, right? What your taste and intuition should tell you is, no, this is the best way. And using my taste, I'm going to become opinionated. I'm going to build a piece of software that is opinionated about the workflow, that is opinionated about the experience. And that, again, starts to collapse potentialities into realities and it starts to create delightful user experiences. I'll often find myself talking to founders about, you don't need to support all of these workflows. You don't need to support all of these options. You need to make a choice based on your taste, based on your intuition, based on your preferences about what kind of opinions this product is going to impose on its users. Because you don't have to win all the use cases all the time. I definitely see where you're coming from. I agree. Some people have better taste than others or are more naturally able to have good taste. But I think as with intuition, Taste comes from understanding people. It comes from empathy. It comes from a basis of science, whether that is actually explicit or not. Like, you know, you talk about like what font to use, right? There's a history of typefaces. There's a science and a tradition of typefaces that you can learn from, right? So people don't just come out of the womb with the best possible taste. Some people are more talented than others, but taste is something that can be learned by having a deep appreciation for the problem domain. Yeah, and actually one of the best ways to get taste is through experience. Correct. Which brings us to the next bullet point here. A lot of what I did in my early career was spend a lot of time paying attention to what other people were doing, other companies were doing, and trying to reverse engineer why they arrived at the conclusions they arrived at. You know, we just made fun of Microsoft a little bit. I actually spent a lot of time observing the launch of Windows 95. And mm. a lot of my friends were nerds and they were very excited about a new operating system. I was equally excited about why did they choose that song, you know, that started up song? And like, why did they choose that logo and that font? And why did they choose that UI? And why did they switch from this Windows interface to this start button? And why are they booting into Windows first now instead of booting into DOS? And then you launch Windows. And there was just all of these choices that I saw that I tried to reverse engineer. Now, I reverse engineered them poorly, <laughs> but it was my substitute for experience. It was like learning from others. And then, of course, there's no substitute for actually going out there and doing it or hiring people who have done it before to help you see around corners, to fast forward to good taste, 
to, through a series of great experiences, have a level of intuition that they wouldn't have ordinarily had to help you craft those constraints and get to your vision. I think experience is this really interesting one. And, you know, Chris, you and I both have a, the odd gray hair. And I think it's one of those things when I was young, I thought experience was kind of this protection racket that old people ran to exclude young people from the best jobs. But, you know, there really is something to experience. And, you know, experience doesn't correlate directly to age. You can make much better or worse use of your time on earth and get your experience faster or slower. But that experience, I nearly think of it in the context of conviction. It's this kind of momentum and inertia, which can be important to staying the course. If you don't have that experience, you might have a lot of conviction and that youthful energy, but at some point you're going to hit those setbacks and you're not going to have enough momentum, enough mass behind you to really be able to crash through those walls and keep going. But I think experience allows you to build a deeper understanding of why you have that conviction so that when times get tough, you can actually brazen it out and work through it. And of course, you know, there are young people who have this kind of obsessive level of conviction. And to me, that's less about true conviction and more about a type of obsession, which can work well for some people. But I think there's a strong element of survivorship bias there. I think people who have a blind, obsessive fixation on a problem, that's not the same as conviction. I think experience gives you the credibility within yourself, not with others, but within yourself to stick to something, even when the going gets tough. Now, the next bullet point we have here is leadership. It might sound a bit weird to include leadership here on a list about conviction, but it really speaks to that nerdy Star Trek story I just told earlier in the episode, which is part of leadership is providing conviction to your team. That's a kind of service, right? We talk about service leadership. Big part of leadership and service leadership is to remove confusion, remove ambiguity and to provide context and to recognize that your job as a leader is to do that. And oftentimes I will bump into inexperienced leaders or maybe ineffective leaders who are failing to lead. They're being very collegial, consensus driven. They design by committee. And of course, you want to empower your team, you want to work with the best stakeholders, you don't want to be dictatorial, but ultimately you need to make calls. You need to demonstrate your conviction. You need to inject clarity into the process. So that's the aspect of leadership that I'm talking about, which is to help bring clarity to your team. And this is really important downstream. So the CEO may have conviction about that really big vision but they've hired a chief product officer to turn some of that vision into a pragmatic reality in the short term. I've seen heads of product or chief product officers who are unable to get their own kind of conviction about the next step in the roadmap because they're waiting for the CEO to hand them the next step. But the CEO is a visionary, he's an ideas guy, and he's looking for the chief product officer to come up with the roadmap, with the strategy. And they're in this little endless loop looking at each other, waiting for someone to get conviction. As a leader somewhere in the hierarchy of a company, you need to be adding conviction, adding resolution at your level of the org. You read between the lines or you get the context that you get, and then you add resolution, you add conviction downstream to help the people who work around you and ostensibly below you to be able to act with their own conviction. As we go through these last few, Chris, I've got this sort of visual metaphor building in my mind, which is like, you've got this speeding train going along a track and that track is covered in obstacles and barriers and snow and things that are trying to slow you down. And you've just got to crash through, like that's your conviction giving you that direction. And, you know, in the previous one with experience, I talked about the experience giving you the momentum, right? The train is heavier. It's got more weight. It can crash through things more, but also 
I think when you look at leadership, leadership is kind of making sure that, you know, the front of that train is kind of nice and pointy and can continue to go through obstacles, right? Where you're like, okay, I'm at the front here. And actually I'm going to preempt like our next point, which is courage. Cause I think it goes into here as well, right? Like the leadership here is at the front of the train. It's designed so that the front of the train is hardened. It takes the hits and it's nicely pointed to get through the obstacles so that all the people, all the carriages behind you get smooth passage, right? And if you're not performing that function up the front of the train, then it gets very difficult for everyone behind you to maintain that conviction and that directionality. 100%. And the courage bullet, which is our last item on this list, is so interesting and subtle and important because particularly in larger companies, but this is also true in small companies, you find leaders who have all of these implicit fears. They may not even be aware of them. I might lose my job or I can't stand up against my boss who is randomizing my team or I want to maintain optionality or I don't want to look bad or make the wrong bet. And yep. again, in my experience where I've been brought into certain companies, I will bump into an executive who knows the right answer or who knows that their leader or their CEO is randomizing them or has a strong instinct about something but has failed through a lack of courage or a lack of assertiveness to push back on that randomization, to declare their opinion and to risk being wrong, to risk losing that job or to risk taking a stand. It's like risk being wrong, but even worse than that, risk looking a little bit stupid, looking a little bit silly. I think that's where the real courage comes is to say, you know, I have to have this conviction and I'm not worried about what the implications for me will be if I'm wrong. Yes. Right. It's not just fear of looking wrong. It's fear of losing face yes. from your conviction. You need to have the courage to say, I'm not going to worry about potential future consequences because if I'm worrying about potential future consequences, that is taking energy and mental focus and clarity away from the present moment. And that is where my head needs to be. Yeah. One of the compliments I received recently from one of the founders I work with is he was interviewing product managers to replace me, right? I'm a stopgap often in companies where I come in, help the product team, and then help them hire a product manager to replace me. And so we're going through that process. And he said, you know, everyone I'm interviewing, they've really got great experience, great craft, but none of them believe in themselves as much as you do. None of them has as much conviction as you do to help clarify a direction for the team. And I said, well, thank you. Hopefully that conviction isn't hubris. <laughs> but the conviction is not in myself. The conviction is that conviction itself is important and that we can make a different choice later and that I don't actually need this job. So I don't, I'm happy to get fired or get proven wrong. Like that's why I'm here. I'm here to inject that kind of clarity. And I don't believe that's true of an advisor exclusively. I think it's true of any good leader is to bring that kind of clarity to the table as well. hundred percent. You talked about not caring too much. You said you don't need the job. I think it's about caring about the right things. And I've talked about this in the past here and also on social media, but I'd say, you know, the great warrior doesn't care too much about their own life. They're focused on fighting the fight. And of course that is different from hubris, from arrogance, from taking foolish risks, but it's about saying I am externally focused on the job I'm trying to do rather than internally focused on the dangers to myself in doing so. And sometimes caring too much gets in the way of that. So I think it's, there is this sort of stoic mindedness that is important here, which is to say we're in a startup and general is not life or death unless you're like Theranos or whatever, like don't take risks with other people's lives or your own, <laughs> but ultimately <laughs> you're trying to build a business. If it doesn't work out, 
as long as you did your best, it's not the end of the world. You live to fight another day, right? And so courage comes sometimes from understanding that the risks that you're taking are not as existential as you might think. So you might as well put everything you have into trying to succeed rather than trying to avoid failure. And that to me is courage. Now, of course, it's worth pointing out here and acknowledging that that takes a certain amount of privilege, right? Absolutely. Certain people do need that job and certain people, it might be almost life and death. So we want to acknowledge that here, but all things being equal, if you're listening to this podcast and you're trying to make some sort of step function change in the world, the risk you're taking is not that big. Now you're getting conviction about taking some kind of action. Oftentimes that action is testing a hypothesis or trying something out in the real world and seeing if it succeeds. What's essential here is also making sure that you recognize that in order to test your conviction, to test your hypotheses, to make forward action, you need to be able to execute well at speed, right? Because you don't want to have conviction about the wrong thing for six to 12 months. It's okay to have conviction about the wrong thing, but you want to have that conviction for as short a period of time as possible. And so that requires three things. It requires executing quickly, executing well, and learning the right things from the execution. It takes all three things at the same time. And oftentimes in my experience, I'll see people executing quickly, but executing poorly. So they're not actually testing the idea because the vocabulary they're using is wrong or the metaphor they're using is wrong or the targeting they're using is wrong or the test is constructed poorly. And so that's a quick execution, but it's poorly done. And then I've seen people who execute very slowly, but everything is perfect, right? Every word, every pixel, every what have you, they're just learning too slowly. And then I've seen other founders, other teams who will maybe execute quickly or execute well, but their takeaways are somehow the wrong takeaway. They've learned the wrong lesson and they've applied it the wrong way. So you need to get all three of those things right in order for your conviction to play out and for you to rinse and repeat this process from conviction to conviction, from tactic to tactic over the course of your startup or your career. I talked about the difference between conviction and obsession, which is that conviction starts with this life force but it needs to be validated by reality over time and as quickly as possible, as you say, Chris. And I posted this quote on social media a little while ago. I think it's attributed to Michelangelo when he was asked about a sculpture of an angel that he made. And he was asked, how did you come up with that idea? And he said, I saw the angel in the marble and I just removed marble until the angel was left. I like that in the context of conviction because what you're saying is, okay, first of all, and I truly believe this, the act of building a startup Like, of course you're building, but it's time to figure out what works, right? It's more of an act of discovery and learning than an act of building. And so you really need to go deep and figure out what the details are that allow your vision to manifest itself into a reality. So you're chipping away at that marble until you see the angel. But at some point you might be like, oh, damn, this is maybe where the metaphor breaks down a little bit, but you're like, oh, actually I was wrong. There's no angel there, right? Like I thought this was a good piece of stone for this angel. I was wrong. I better sculpt something else instead. And you want to make that learning as quickly as possible. And so that iteration cycle is you do not want to spend too much time learning that it's just not going to work. You want to get to that point of packing it in, you know, failing fast or pivoting or whatever it is you're going to do, changing your conviction if you need to as soon as possible. Now here's where there is some science, but I believe there's also a little bit of art, which is knowing the difference between updating or changing your conviction and thrash. Because there is a tension here, right? We're talking about making a decision to unblock your team, to mitigate constant relitigation, and to create space for forward momentum that's consistent over time. And we're talking about learning quickly, 
executing well and making a change when you need to. Because if you are unable to make a change, that's called dogma. <laughs> and it's the antithesis of the point of a startup. As you're talking about, Yanev, I really love that Michelangelo quote of bringing the angel out of the marble. And so this balancing act of having conviction, but refining it over time as you collect data and abandoning it at the right time, once you decide that conviction was misplaced, is, in my opinion, some of the most difficult and important things a founder can do. And oftentimes the difference between a successful great founder and a unsuccessful founder who hasn't been able to make it. If I may become a bit wonkish again, I think the Bayesian model of belief is actually really valuable here. And the concept of Bayesian belief models is you come in with what's called a prior, right? Which is basically what you believe at the beginning. And then as you collect evidence, you update your prior. So in other words, the classic version of probability is you don't know anything until you get data, right? But that's not true, right? You already have beliefs. I believe the sun is going to rise tomorrow morning. And every time the sun rises in the morning, that strengthens my prior belief that it will rise again the next morning. The more I learn about how the universe is built, how the solar system operates, the more that strengthens my belief that the sun is going to rise in the morning. And, you know, because there is very little disconfirming evidence, I have near certainty the sun is going to rise tomorrow morning. So to me, conviction is saying you want enough of a Bayesian prior that you're not just like, oh, you know, anything could happen. You come in with quite a strong belief and then you gather evidence to update it. That evidence can strengthen the belief or it can weaken the belief. And at the point at which it becomes too weak, that is when you abandon it and try something else. I love it. I love your wonkiness, Yanev. I think that's, that's a really beautiful, beautiful way of describing it. Thanks, mate. All right. Well, that's our episode about conviction. I think we made that episode with a lot of conviction, Yanev. What do you reckon? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not too, I'm not too sure about that. So, Chris, people might be listening to this and going, you know what? I need more conviction in my life. How do I get the experience, the courage, the taste, the data to get true conviction and lead my team? And in that case, they might be looking to you for a little bit of outside help. So how can they get it? <laughs> yeah, I love these segues we've come up with. They're fantastic. In all seriousness, a lot of what I do is around conviction. Some of it is based on intuition and taste and experience. And some of it is based on the unfair advantage that I am emotionally and tactically removed from the problem that the founder and the executives are involved in. And so I think of myself as like a bit of a drone hovering above the forest and I can tell which way is north and point people in the right direction. So I do spend a lot of time working on conviction with founders. If you would like to work with me on that, check out chrissard.com advisory and you can learn more about what I do there. Okay. Now there's a fun podcast I listen to called My First Million. I'm sure quite a few of you listen to it too. And at the end of each episode, they mention something called the gentleman's agreement, which is if you listen to their podcast more than an episode or two and you like it, you have to follow them on YouTube. That's the gentleman's agreement. Now, we like to be more inclusive. We know not everyone here identifies as a gentleman. I certainly don't. So here at the Startup Podcast, we are introducing the pack. And the pact is, if you listen to our podcast and you enjoy it, we would like you to please make sure that you follow us in your listening app or subscribe, depending on what it's called and that you give us a rating in either or both of Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And if you can make that Apple Podcasts rating a written review, then you are really hitting it out of the park. It makes such a difference to feed these algorithms and help people find us. And so if you're getting value out of what we do and we wanna help more people, so help us help more people the way we've helped you by honoring the pact. Very cool, Yanev. And how can people follow you personally? 
So I am very active on LinkedIn. I try to be less boring than the average person on LinkedIn. So please follow me there. Or in fact, if you are a startup podcast listener, I'd be happy to have a full connection with you. So if you hit me up with a connection, say you're from the startup podcast, then I will accept that connection. You can also find me on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Facebook, anywhere. Just search Chris Sard and I'm easy to find and give me a follow there. All right, Yenev, that was fun as always. It was. Have a great week.